Hello everyone and welcome back to the second episode of History at a Glance with your host Josh Cohn. Today I will be reviewing another book by Jean-Pierre Filou called Best of Enemies, A History of U.S. and Middle East Relations. Now this is the first book in a series of a couple books and the timeline that we have for this volume is 1783 to 1953. And this is an illustrated book. The illustrator is David Bouchard. It's a graphic novel. It's very, very entertaining. I like the art style and the visual visuals that this book presents. I like the dark humor in this book. I like the serious tones when it needs to be serious. But I also like how they interject a little bit of comic relief into all of this. Now... I really wanted to review this book because I really enjoyed reviewing his last book about Gaza. I thought that was really fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that too. I know it was a bit long, but I'm trying to figure out a way to condense these podcasts down even more. So bear with me. I'm really trying. Let's just go forward from here. So this book is very interesting because it talks about our relations with the Middle East from a wholly different perspective. Now, Jean-Pierre Filou is a professor of Middle East studies in Paris. He has a very good background knowledge on the entire Middle East and the relations internally, but also externally with more powerful nations like our own in America. And he's able to give his perspective and objective knowledge at the same time to this very specific topic. And that's what I really enjoyed. And that's what I enjoyed about his last book about Gaza. Is he has a very good working knowledge of all these things. And he's able to compile it in a way that makes sense to a lot of people. It's a lot of information. I think that people should reread parts of the book if they're unsure because he does pack in a lot of information specifically in Gaza I had my time reading it I had a lot of very interesting thoughts and interesting questions and I had to do a little bit of my own research on people that I didn't know were very important and integral to Palestine's history furthermore I want to talk about this book Because the Middle East is a topic that fascinates me. I enjoy learning about Middle Eastern culture. I enjoy learning about the history. It's just something that's always intrigued me. So I found it perfect that this episode should be about the Middle East. And the last episode was about the Middle East, specifically Palestine, which is another area that I'm very interested in. So I think that... I have a good focus for these first two episodes in talking about this specific location in the world. It's very tumultuous. It provides a lot of stories and tragedies that we can all learn from. So join me to talk about Jean-Pierre Filou's book, Best of Enemies, A History of U.S. and Middle East Relations. Now, I just want to say I thoroughly enjoy graphic novels. 
I grew up reading a decent amount of them, and I find it a form of media that's extremely engaging and that can uh, interest people all across age spectrums, from smaller children to grown adults. I think that certain books can interest any type of audience, no matter how old they are. This book is obviously for an older audience, uh, specifically because of the subject matter, but I think kids that are even in middle school could come to enjoy this kind of book if they have certain levels of mental maturity and are willing and are interested in this kind of topic and learning. It's a great book to understand our country's history with the Middle East, uh, spanning far longer than even I knew, but also I would assume the general public knows about this history. It's, it's, it's something that when you look at it, it makes sense. It makes sense why we would even be continuing to do anything in the Middle East for as long as we had been. Why did we even get involved when we did in the mid-20th century? And it gives more perspective of why we'd want to continue. Regardless of the more recent history, we've, we've been there for so long that it, the cycle keeps perpetuating itself. And whenever relations between two areas start, it's usually because one has a long history with the other. It doesn't just start out of nowhere. So I'm very happy to review this book. I had a very good time reading it. It's a it's a pretty light read. The book is not not many pages. If I had to think off the top of my head, I think maybe 70 maybe up to 100 pages in that range. So not not very long, very short book. It's very it's very captivating. The artwork, the illustrator is very good at capturing different ways of looking at people, specifically different historical figures. I like the way that he plays with lights and he plays with sort of making people look like monsters or making them look like creatures and this and that. It makes it it makes it easier to process in my brain, but I also think that the reader will have a good time because it's such a good way of representing people's emotions and visually presenting them to get a clearer picture of them especially when people are doing nefarious deeds like that that's one of the perfect things in this book and that I really enjoyed when it shows people messing with people that they shouldn't it depicts them as monsters as gangly people standing over other people and what I really liked about this book is it showed me my lack of knowledge on my own country's history with the Middle East. It starts much farther than I, even I would have thought that our country would have interacted overseas with people from the Middle East. It's really interesting. The book starts off in the late 1700s. It talks about the U.S.'s relation with the Barbary pirates, which are essentially just pirates off the coast of North Africa that would attack different European ships and take the bounties back. And this is also under the time of the Ottoman Empire. So they're on, operating 
loosely under that empire. The Ottomans didn't enforce extremely strict rules on them, but these were independent people. They had a different religion. They were Muslims, predominantly, that were attacking these ships. And this is where we see one of the seminal and, I would say, origin points for the U.S.'s relationship to the Middle East, specifically North Africa, but branching out into the wider Middle East eventually as we interacted with the people that lived there. Now, the U.S. would send ships overseas. They would, they would trade with other countries. And fleets of their ships that traded in the Mediterranean or with other European countries were being raided by these Barbary pirates. And it got so bad that they had to send word back to American presidents and leaders and military people to say, look, we can't have these people constantly raiding our ships and stealing our stuff. It's just, it's, it's an impossible situation. It's unsustainable. We can't have this happen. So eventually, the U.S. tries to negotiate with the Barbary pirates. They try to negotiate with the Ottomans. A lot of these agreements fall apart, and we start to see the first origins of conflict in the Middle East. Now, one thing I do want to say that I forgot to mention at the very beginning is that the book opens up the first few pages, the first passage of this book that I think gives a striking visual representation is the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, the Epic of Gilgamesh is an ancient Sumerian text that talks about a great flood story. The titular hero is Gilgamesh, and his buddy, his sidekick, is Enkidu. And their relationship is very fascinating. The book talks about this story to great detail. In the end, there's a point where there is a bunch of bodies lying on the ground that relates to the story, and the book draws a direct comparison between that, th the visual representation of those bodies that they had drawn from the Epic of Gilgamesh that the illustrator had drawn to the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq during the U.S. invasion when you had U.S. soldiers. I believe they were army if I'm not wrong, and they had people who were in the U.S. Army abusing prisoners, and the pictures of the abuse were leaked to the media, and this is how people were exposed to the war crimes that the U.S. had been committing, and this first visual representation draws a stark comparison, and it's a very, very good way to start a book, I really enjoyed it. I thought that that was brilliant. I thought that anybody who has that type of, of, uh, of idea to do that kind of thing is really smart. And I, I've always, I've liked that about movies and I've liked that about books that I've read, even if they don't, if they're not graphic novels. I really enjoy making comparisons with things that have previously happened in history and showing the, the, the emotional you know, it, it's a stark thing. It's like if you go to a art museum or anything, you're going to see things 
like that in an art museum. They'll show something maybe from our ancient past and they'll compare it to modern living, something very mundane, but they'll show that it has, there's, there's patterns that occur throughout history, whether it be direct patterns or just uh, what our brains do in, in determining these patterns, it doesn't matter. It's still a pattern and it's still a good contrast and it shows that human beings are human beings. War and conflict has not stopped and we have not figured out a good way to avoid these events happening. So I I very much give my thanks to the people who wrote and illustrated this book. That was very good. That's a great way to start your book. And it got me into it right away, right from the get-go. I'm very invested in this book. I already have an interest in this topic, so I have that going for me. But then they start off with this intriguing story, this ancient Sumerian thing, this this idea that the Middle East is one of the cradles of civilization, Sumer, which was in modern-day Iraq now. This is a beginning point for all human civilization. It was in the Middle East, and it's fascinating that they would make that comparison to what would happen thousands of years later as we come into conflict with the Middle East. So that was fantastic. Good job. Now the book goes through different periods after the U.S.'s initial engagement with people in the Middle East. It talks about the the, uh, ruling people at the time in the Middle East, and it talks about different periods and different upheavals that we, we, we experienced and what we saw. One thing in particular that I found interesting is our relationship to Saudi Arabia, or at least the modern country of Saudi Arabia. It, it didn't exist before the 20th century. Now, Saudi Arabia is one of the most, one of the biggest violators of human rights in the world today. They're the mo- one of the most theocratic nations in the entire world in the Middle East. They have a stranglehold over their people. They restrict women's rights and they restrict religious minority rights. And this has specific type of government has its roots many years ago. This didn't happen out of nowhere, and it was helped by the U.S.'s involvement in the Middle East. So when we talk about Saudi Arabia, we have to talk about two families. We have to talk about the House of Saud and the House of Wahhab. Now, these two families joined together at some point to form the current family that rules over Saudi Arabia. The reason it's called Saudi Arabia is because the the ruling family is Saud. That's the family name. It's their principality. It's Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula, and they have their stake in it. They have their kingdom there. Now, the House of Wahhab, you have a bunch of people who are very puritanical thinkers. They're, they are hardline in their interpretation of Islam. 
they don't want any relations between Muslims and non-Muslims, specifically with Christians and Jews. They find Christians and Jews, based on their interpretation of the Quran, to be the worst of God's creations, specifically the Jews. The Jews always get a bad rap when it comes to talking about Islam or Middle Eastern politics. This is a this is a recurring theme that you're always going to see. The Christians get it too. And this has to do with the history of Islam. But getting back to my point, the 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 Wahhab, House of Wahhab, the Wahhabi, the Wahhabis, as they're called, the adherents of this school of philosophy of Islamic jurisprudence, these people take a very hardline approach. They don't allow their wives out of the house normally. This is why Saudi Arabia, because of its influence, because of the marriage between the house of Wahhab and the house of Saud, you see this, this idea of women need to be covered at all times. They need to wear a niqab. They can't just wear a burqa. And most women that come from very, very conservative families need to stay at the house. They're the ones that are going to raise the children, and they can't be seen out. And if they do, they have to be accompanied by a male guardian that's in either in their family or is their husband because a man cannot be with a woman if they are not married in Saudi Arabia and most Middle Eastern countries that have an Islamic government. Now, the U.S.'s involvement in all of this was to support the Saudi family in the early 1900s. And this is because they wanted to have access to the oil in Saudi Arabia. They knew that there was massive oil reserves in Saudi Arabia. They wanted to have their own stake in that. So they set up companies. They set up one company in particular called Aramco. It's one of the biggest oil companies in the entire world. And we get a substantial amount of oil from Saudi Arabia and our agreement and trade with them when it comes to this. And we supported the Saudi royal family in their efforts to modernize Saudi Arabia and to take control of Saudi Arabia. So we've had, we've been influencing sort of more hardline interpreters of Islam for a very long time, even before we were supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan during the 70s against the Soviet Union. Long before that, actually. And we, we mostly are in the Middle East for our own interests. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about oil, blood for oil, essentially, in the context of the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan. We saw that, oh, specifically with Iraq that they have oil, that this isn't a, a war of ideology, this isn't a war of taking Saddam out, this isn't a war of policing the world and being able to have access to the large oil reserves and sustaining our role in the world as a superpower. This is how some people interpret this. So getting back to Saudi Arabia, the U.S. had tried to play with Saudi Arabia and having access to their oils, while at the same time 
trying to give their support to Israel. And this put them in a very awkward position because obviously the Saudis are completely opposed to the state of Israel. They hate Jews. They don't want, they don't want any Jewish presence in the Middle East. That's not even a reality for them. And the U.S. is supporting Israel under the sort of ideological principle of they share our own values, they're a democracy, they respect women's rights, they do all of this stuff, and they're the only ones that we can cooperate within the Middle East, more specifically, that are reliable and are more sort of westernized in their approach to running a country. They're not as influenced by religion, although obviously later on, the right-wing government in Israel has grown in its influence and has tried to insert more ideas of a theocracy in the, in the near future in Israel. But talking about where we are in the early to mid-1900s, we, we see the U.S. supporting Israel at the cost of also supporting Saudi Arabia. And this is a very strange relationship. The reason that we support Saudi Arabia, we want the oil, the Saudi family supposedly are people that we can trust. They allow us to have access to the oil. A lot of the other countries around the Middle East are not as stable. We we don't have as strong relationships with them. And they don't have as quite as much oil reserves as Saudi Arabia. And so we don't we find that the U.S. is not wanting to sort of establish relationships with these people quite as strongly. Another thing that's important to note when we talk about the relationship between the U.S. and Israel at this time that the book is talking about is it gives the impression that obviously the, the, the Saudis didn't want want Israel to exist, but it, it gives the impression that they weren't completely opposed to the Jews existing anywhere in the world. They weren't entirely vi- virulently anti-Semitic to the extent that they would go and hunt these people down and murder them. It, it wasn't at the fever pitch that it, you find it today in the Middle East, although it's it wasn't great even back then. But you have the the king at that time talking to the president of the U.S. before the state of Israel is created. And they have a conversation about where the Jews should go, how the Jews should be appropriated or sort of um, re- relocated, rather. They shouldn't, the, the Saudi king at the time wants the, wants the, the Jews to not, come into Palestine. He just wants them to be reimbursed with property back in Europe because they don't come from the Middle East. This isn't their land and they haven't been living on it for centuries like the Palestinians have been. And so if they were kicked out of Europe, they should be able to come back and be reimbursed by the governments and given free housing, specifically the Holocaust victims. This is what the Saudi king had said to the Americans. And this is very interesting. This is something that I didn't know and that I really enjoyed reading about in this book. 
I always assumed that the Arabs hated the Jews throughout the entire history of the Middle East. It sure wasn't good. I know enough about the history of Islam and other religions in the Middle East to understand that this go- this hatred and animosity goes much further. It's in specifically a lot of it is in the literature of Islam. If you read a lot of the hadiths, it talks about this. It's directly in the Quran. There's many surahs which are just like the chapters in the Quran that talk about that one that I mentioned earlier specifically talks about don't take the Jews and Christians as allies. This is sort of the hardline interpretation that the Wahhabis took. This is what I was talking about where this 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 hatred, this this Muslim anti-Semitism, this is where it originates from and this is how the Wahhabis take advantage of that. So th- this is sort of the religious origins of a lot of these things. But I didn't know that it wasn't as contentious as it would be after the state of Israel was created or leading up to mass Jewish immigration into Palestine that the Jews weren't always, let's just put it at, weren't always extremely persecuted in the Middle East. But it wasn't a good situation. And if I just talk about it briefly with the history of religious minorities in the Middle East, the Christians and Jews were allowed to live under Islamic governments, or rather Islamic land, but they were given second-class citizenship, essentially. They're second-class citizens because they, they were people of the book, but they weren't Muslims, and so they had to even wear different clothes. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember reading about Jews and Christians having to wear different color clothes or a different sort of identification on their clothes during the Islamic Caliphate because they needed to be identified as people that were not Muslims, and they were also not able to to build their own synagogue. If there was a synagogue that existed in what was now the Islamic lands after the conquests of uh, Muhammad and Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman, they couldn't build their own synagogues, but if they existed there, they could pray there, or they couldn't, they couldn't pray in, they couldn't build their own churches, but they could pray in the ones that previously existed under the Roman Empire, if we're being specific. So this is that's that's sort of a a brief overview of the status of religious minorities that will play a role later on in the Middle East. But we're talking about America and the Middle East. So America's always been involved in the Middle East for reasons of self-preservation and self-interest. And when I say self-preservation, I mean we can reach out to other parts of the world and we can sort of in, insert our influence or rather when we talk about the period when we were fighting the Barbary pirates, it was self-preservation in the sense that we needed to trade with these other European countries around the Mediterranean and around Africa and the Barbary pirates were cutting this access off. So we weren't able to do that because of their attacks. And so we needed to preserve this because this was directly affecting our trade routes in the world. And it was not a good strategy to send a bunch of men out in uh, a ship just to be massacred, essentially. 
and self-interest comes in more specifically when we talk about oil. That's sort of the takeaway of the book. I know this has become a meme in a lot of ways to people. I mentioned earlier that whole idea of blood for oil, but it, it's, it's sort of true. I mean, there were other reasons why we got involved. We were sort of competing for influence after the European colonies broke up in the Middle East. But even before then, with trade and all these things, we wanted access to these countries because we, 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 we wanted um, sugar and, and different, different things like coffee and all of these products that can come from the Middle East. Spices was a huge thing that we traded for when we, when we went to the Mediterranean, specifically around the area that we were being attacked, because a lot of these Middle Eastern countries and countries in the Mediterranean basin had a lot of spices and that that was extremely valued at the time it's i mean it still is in a lot of ways maybe maybe not directly in the US but around the world the spice trade is in, is incredible and it's always been very strong throughout history so this is a huge thing and so these are things that people are willing to fight for but we needed to be able to look at our own interests instead of thinking well maybe if we insert more people in here, more people will die. And we all, we're also causing more issues for people. And this is not a good look for us. But this, this will dawn on America many centuries later. And it's not, a, it's not something that we are always self-aware of. But I think that we can become more conscious I mean, I know we are now, but I think we can become even more nuanced about our conscious self-awareness of meddling in the Middle East because we've been doing it far longer than I've known about. And that ma many people, would, I'm confident to say that many people would know about we've been meddling in Middle Eastern affairs for a long time. Another part I want to talk about is our relationship with Iran. Now, this is an extremely important one. The one with Saudi Arabia is extremely important, especially in the context now of Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen and our military support for that, essentially, because of this strong relationship that we've had with Saudi Arabia for so many years. And talking about Iran, it's a similar issue. We wanted oil. This is such a, a cliche in American relations with the Middle East. We wanted oil. Iran had oil as well, massive amounts of oil reserves. Now, when the U.S. was getting ready to essentially take the oil and insert their influence, the, 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 the guideline for the U.S. or sort of the motivating principle was to say, you know, we want to insert a, a, an acting democratic leader we want to insert somebody that's better for the people but really it's just the guys that's just propaganda that's what that's saying is we want to depose a democratically elected leader to install our puppet and this puppet will give us access to all the oil that we want and we don't care about how much we're interfering with normal people's lives or interfering with the natural ebb and flow of pol pol politics in in iran and the wider middle east so this is exactly what we did in Iran in the 1940s and 50s. We ousted a man named Mossadegh, the president 
of Iran at the time. And we installed the the Shah, Reza Pahlavi, the Shah, back into power. He was a part of the monarchy. Now he's back into power. This is sort of symbolic in a lot of ways, but really it's just because we needed a guy that we could trust that had the wherewithal to give us the oil. He's essentially a secular dictator. This is another common theme that we're going to see all throughout the Middle East later on that most of these leaders that get violently deposed and that we the U.S. eventually gets an outcome that they don't want is because they start off as secular dictators and the people aren't having it. So Reza Shah, he's a secular dictator. He's not very religious at all, even in his private life. He, he is a Muslim. Uh, Iran is majority Shia. It's been that way for centuries. But there's not much about Reza Shah that's pious. Now, Iran has a strong clerical order. They have mullahs. They have ayatollahs. But most of these people are under extreme pressure and are sort of either banned from politically uh, politically uh, protesting or politically organizing. And this is going to create a pressure cooker situation that's not going to work out. But the U.S., this is this is what the U.S. did exactly. They deposed a democratically elected leader. It's so clear in the book. It's it's clear from my knowledge of history, from what I've researched about this. I knew this coming into the book, but the book does a really great job of focusing on this event and highlighting it heavily to show just how messed up it all is. And I I thoroughly enjoyed that part of it. This is where the artwork style that I was mentioning earlier comes back in people looking all gangly and evil because they're talking about deposing people. It shows a part um, where you have a... It's actually a relative. I forget his name, but he was a relative of the Roosevelt family. And he was one of the people that was a main architect of overthrowing Mossadegh and installing the Shah. And they just make him look, like, so evil. They... they you're, People will have to read the book after I record this, but the the book makes him look just so stretched out and hunched over and so conniving. He looks like a devil. He's like frothing at the mouth. I think at one point he definitely has beady eyes as depicted in this book. It's very entertaining, but it's all, it's scary in a lot of ways. The, the visual art style, I, I liked it, but it, it, it almost scares me in some ways because it's so accurate and it's so disappointing to see U.S. officials, to no surprise, but to just my horror acting in this disgusting way, deposing people. And I, that's what I love about visual artwork. I've always been a fan of that, especially when it comes to politics, because it's a very great way of depicting people's frustration and anger with an event happening, and it shows Mossadegh as just this man that's completely defeated. He's He was a very uh, a lean man, so when they show him after he's been deposed, he's he's very skinny, and he's just very, you know, drawn back. He has sullen eyes. He's, he's, a, he's very tall, but he's kind of slumped over after all of this happens, and so I like the dichotomy of these 
towering, evil, conniving figures over this man that's just emaciated and completely defeated after all of this. And so the result of, of, of our interference in Iran eventually is the Islamic Revolution in 1979. And this is just poetic justice for what the U.S. tried to do in Iran. It completely backfired. They got exactly exactly the opposite of what they wanted. They wanted a guy that wasn't religious, that couldn't stir up those kind of sentiments, that wasn't going to oppose anything that the U.S. was doing, especially culturally. Because what people have to understand, if they don't know, is that Iran was a very westernized country when Reza Shah was ruling over it. There's, there's these famous pictures. On social media, you can see this as well, if people are of an Iranian background or they know somebody from Iran, or they're involved with political activism against the current regime in Iran, the Islamic regime, they show these pictures of women before the revolution and after revolution, and that's one of the clearest signs of a complete shift in administration and just ideology in the entire country. You see women having their hair out, looking very Western and wearing makeup. And then after the Islamic Revolution, they're covered in hijabs, and specifically the chador, which is the sort of Iranian Muslim covering. It's it's a full body covering. You can see the face, but it covers the entire body. It's a dress as well. So that's that's very interesting. There's also photos of men and women co-mingling, just having a good time, sitting on on the beach or sitting on just sitting out out in nature and public and things like that, just eating, having a good time. And afterwards, none of that. Under an Islamic government, you can't you can't men and women can't interact. There's segregation, gender segregation. You can't be seen without a male guardian as well or you 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 have to be you have to go out and essentially you you always have to wear hijab you can never not be covered you can't specifically the the gender segregation you can't be seen with somebody that's not your husband like you couldn't go into like say a hotel room in Iran with somebody that's not your husband this is all across the Islamic world uh, you could get arrested for that. That's that's a very serious crime in those countries. And we can see how ironic this is for how much that we, rightfully so because of the human rights violations, but how much we complain in the West and we show pictures of people before the revolution and don't understand that we had the role in doing that. And Getting involved again, obviously we have, there's tension now between us and Iran. I don't know if it looks like we're going to war. I would very, very hope, hope that that's not the case, obviously. I'm, I'm completely anti-war. We don't need to be escalating tensions. But anyways, that's just to talk about the irony of what we did in Iran. It's, it's a very stupid and bumbling move by the U.S. that have ramifications beyond anything that we even wanted. But it's hard not to say we deserved it for how hideous we acted. 
in the Middle East. Now, when we deposed Mossadegh and installed the Shah, there's extreme political repression, like I was saying before, of the mullahs and different religious leaders. And eventually, these were the leaders that started the Islamic Revolution because they're fed up of having their rights taken away and they were fed up of not being able to freely practice their religion. One, one important note is to understand is that those pictures that show women without hijabs, the hijab was actually banned at one point under Reza Shah because he was attempting to westernize the country. He was doing exactly what his western masters, I'll use that term, wanted him to do, essentially. So this is sort of part of the reason that you see that Iran was westernized at this time. The The book talks about it a, a little bit, but it doesn't go into great detail. But just this is something I can say from my knowledge of Iran's history, just a little bit, that it's a lot to do with the policies that the Shah installed to strengthen his relationships with the West and specifically America because America is a superpower and you always want America on your side. At least they they did. Now now Middle Eastern countries couldn't care less. But now we have a man that is repressing people in his own countries. People hate him. And it created a perfect storm for people to want to come in and depose him. And the, the book talks about this. It, the book leaves at this point when the, the Shah is installed. So this stuff I'm talking about afterwards, obviously the book covers in later editions, but it stops in the 50s when the Shah is installed. But I wanted to give more context of the things that happened afterwards because I, I like talking about this stuff. It's very interesting to me and it's very close to my heart in a way because I, I'm an American and I care about what my government is doing overseas and I care about knowing what the true history of our country is and not what politicians tell me what it is. So that's, that's extremely important to me. And the book does a really good job of doing that. I think the book is really good from a European perspective because Jean-Pierre Fillou, the guy who wrote the book, is from France. And so I think he gives more of a, that sort of, I don't want to say completely objective, but when you have a source from Europe, let's say, and, and not from the Middle East, because I, I even think that that would be too... I think there are good writers in the Middle East. Obviously, I'm not trying to smear anybody. I just think it would be a little too biased and there would be too much things that I've seen reoccurring and sort of cliches of a lot of writers, especially journalists in the Middle East where they talk about you know everything being a Western conspiracy and the Zionists being in control of everything. It gets a little tedious, but I'm not trying to overgeneralize. I know... There's a lot of good writers, uh, specifically from Iran. Iran has a great literary hist uh, history and tradition. Obviously, every country does, but I, I really appreciate what the Middle East has to offer. And I like the resistance of people in Iran and how they look back at their history after the Islamic Revolution. And they really are understand whether it be from the government because of their anti-American rhetoric, but they really understand what 
what the U.S. did to their country. But getting back to what I was saying is that I think it's good from a European perspective because Europeans were sort of in the middle. Obviously, they were the colonial powers back way back when. But now, in my opinion, Europe has sort of tried to play more of a mitigator and diplomatic and condemn a lot of the things that America tries to do because America on the world stage is seen as a rogue state in a lot of ways and that operates under its own auspices. In my opinion, my opinions are my own and they shouldn't be taken out of context of this podcast. I'm not trying to smear my own country. My country is very diverse and there are a lot of good people, but we're talking about history and history is not pretty. And this is how people view us on the world stage. And this book is very good at identifying why people would even come up with ideas of anti-American rhetoric. It's because we've been involved with coups and we've been involved with very bad people that we shouldn't have been involved with in the first place. So I like talking about that because it's important to question your own government. It's important to question your reality and what people in charge are putting out there and I think when it comes from an international and different source you're able to see your country and reflect on it in a different way especially when it's visually presented I mean that's just funny to me and I like that stuff and it shows things in a dark humor so I I really like that I, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this book I think that anybody who has any interest in the Middle East should pick this book up and especially if you are more intrigued by visual representation like I am I honestly could read all kinds of graphic novels if they're in the style that this one is in I'm I'm hook it's hook line and sinker for me because I I like when books do that but sometimes I have I have a tendency to look seek that stuff out in in books that that don't have pictures, I, I have a hard time visualizing things sometimes. It's why I'm always searching for images after I read something because I need to know what it what it looks like. It's hard for me to p- picture everything when it's just written down in pages. And this book is incredible for that because it just shows. It it, it tells a, a tell a picture tells a million stories, but a drawing is dynamic and it can show multi faceted things happening all at once so i really like that i i just like talking about i I like i like doing this i like reviewing these books i I know i want to move on to more diverse topics for this podcast but i think it's a good way to start talking about these kind of books because they're very fun and I, i i love this kind of stuff i I I always want to know as much information I can about the Middle East. It's always something that's going to be important on the world stage, but specifically with America and how we deal with it, how we're dealing with forces like ISIS and Iran and the current government of Saudi Arabia and different groups in the Middle East and how a lot of this is because of our involvement there and our misunderstanding and misreading of history. And this is why I wanted to start this podcast and wanted to to give perspective about how important history is and how much I've always admired learning about history because it's opened my eyes 
especially if you talk about politics, because when we talk about politics, people often get in over their heads and start talking about things that they shouldn't, that they should go back and do more research. Fortunately, that's the nature of politics. It's all about sound bites, and it's all about appealing to your constituents and making the case for yourself, for yourself, regardless of how much you know about a topic. I'd find it more... I'd find America would be doing a better job at educating itself and having people inform the public on different things and our actual history involvement with these countries instead of selling a narrative. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And it's not going to happen just at the snap of a fingers or immediately, as long as I'm alive at least. So, I don't know. I don't know the outcome, but this book certainly shows the outcome of different parts of our history with the Middle East. I love that we have been interacting with people in the Middle East since our country was founded, essentially. I mean, it's not many years after the Declaration of Independence was signed and we were a fledgling country that we even came into contact with people from halfway across the globe and we're starting to come into starting to have conflict with them even then it it makes everything that we've been doing in the middle east look so much bigger and 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 there's more at stake there's more reasons why we'd be involved so i enjoyed talking about this book if you have the chance pick it up it's a quick read not going to take you very long and I think that you can enlighten yourself on things that are happening in the world and I think it really it really puts your puts put at least it puts my mind at rest I would hope it puts someone else's mind at rest and understanding why we keep doing the things that we do and that it isn't for no reason in terms of history repeating itself it, we don't just do things because we're crazy. We we have they're not rational actions, but we do things based on history and this is why I love talking about this. History is a great topic to explore human nature and explore the multifaceted ideas that jump around in people's heads and that make up the fabric of our society and that uh, that uh, force us to 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 come into contact with other people and do the things that we do so thanks for joining me for the second episode of history at a glance check the book out and we'll catch you guys later